we don't actually know a great deal about what he was doing thereafter. We know that he became a clergyman. We know also that around 1760, he had a rather serious quarrel with the Archbishop of Canterbury about a very, very out-of-the-way technical theological matter. And was summoned to Lambeth Palace and interrogated in person by the Archbishop. Those were the days when Archbishops' powers were somewhat more draconian than they'd been recently. <laughs> Quite a few people I would like to summon to the land of Paris. There we are. But he escaped without major censure, though he did have to write a statement declaring his acceptance of the official formulae of the Church of England. That was the price he paid for going to his new parish in 1760. We know that in the 1760s he was an army chaplain for a while. In other words, he had experience on the continent of Europe of one of the most long-lasting, futile, bloody wars of that age. And that had its impact upon him. And eventually, partly because of his family connections and friendships. He became the master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, in 1781. Three years later, he became the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, that is, the nominal head of the entire university. In those days, every head of every college took their turn at being head of the university for a short period. And he remained in Cambridge until 1792, when he moved to the cathedral in Peterborough. Now the significance of the year 1781, when he first became master of Morton, is that it was in that year that one of the greatest moral scandals of the age hit the consciousness of the British people. It's known to history as the Zong incident. A slave ship called the Zong got into difficulties in the Western Atlantic, Northern Caribbean, and the captain of the ship decided to lighten his load and save food by throwing over a hundred slaves overboard to drown. Even by the standards of the 18th century slave trade, this was regarded as somewhat shocking. The captain and others were prosecuted eventually in England for murder, but unsuccessfully, because the argument was made in the law courts that the first duty of the captain was to be owners of the ship, and therefore his first task was to save money. And if that meant throwing some cargo overboard, that was unfortunately a price that had to be paid. Now, Eckhart already had something of a record as an eloquent and principled critic of social abuses in England, and I'll come back to that shortly. But he, like many others, decided that the time had come to be 
begin a systematic campaign against slavery. Very sensibly, he asked himself what it was that he, as head of a college, head of a university, could do. And what he did in 1784 was to exercise one of the privileges of the Vice Chancellor of Cambridge. And that was to prescribe a subject for a prize essay in the university. It sounds like a rather small thing to us. But in the small world of 18th century Cambridge, the Vice Chancellor's prize essay was something of an event. It would be a composition which many people would read in the university. It would be circulated to graduates of the university, that is, to a lot of clergy in particular. Eckhart knew that it was an opportunity to begin the debate. And so the subject he prescribed for the essay in 1784 was Is it lawful to enslave human beings? prize was won by a young student from our neighbouring college of St. John's, one Thomas Clarkson. Clarkson, who had no great previous interest in this subject, was stirred to do some research and wrote an eloquent, powerful piece, which was his own first contribution to what turned out to be a lifetime of campaigning against the slave trade. Clarkson, along with the ex-slave Equiano and later William Wilberforce, were the three great voices in Britain raised against the slave trade, and eventually, in 1807, of course, they succeeded in securing the abolition of the trade by parliamentary decision. So Eckhart, you could say, is the person who put the torch to the gunpowder trail finally exploded the greatest moral abuse of that age. Some of you may just have seen, been aware of, the great slogan that was used in the British anti-slavery campaign at that time. It was four words printed around a little image, an image which showed a chained African with hands upraised. And the motto was, Am I not a man and a brother? The great British potter, Josiah Wedgwood, famously designed a plate with that at its centre. And that was another way of spreading the word. But what very few people know is that it was Packard who designed that image and chose that slogan, Am I not a man and a brother? And that slogan was the title of a pamphlet or open letter which Packard himself addressed in 1788 to the British government. Seven years later, he was still campaigning actively on the subject, because in 1795, the last 
recorded anthems, which he wrote, came out under the title, National Crimes, the Cause of National Punishments. He said, the greatest unresolved national crime of Great Britain was its complicity in slavery. And as long as that complicity evil survived, there was no hope of the British people being at peace or living in prosperity. And the reverses that Britain was enduring at that time in its war with France, Eckhart unashamedly described the evil of the heart of British society. It's very strong stuff. Well, that gives you some sense of Eckhart's significance in one of the great movements of the late 18th century. Eckhart was not only someone concerned with abuses on the global scale. As I've already said, he was much engaged with domestic issues. And one of the problems that arose as early as the 1750s was a resurgence in Britain of violent and bigoted anti-Semitism. A couple of small concessions in the British law to the rights of Jewish people in Britain had led to widespread rioting. In 1753, there appeared a pamphlet with the title Popular Clamour Against the Jews Indefensible. Its author, Peter Beckham. In that pamphlet, and in some of his later books, Eckhart, very much ahead of his time and most of his contemporaries in the Church of England, argued strongly that a society should not make religious discriminations. That is, people of all faiths should enjoy the same liberty under the law. Just a year later, he wrote another pamphlet on the nature and extent of civil liberty. A brief but very important and again very eloquent essay on the need for social liberty and religious liberty to be carefully distinguished but also to go hand in hand. The rights of conscience for every individual community and the rights of citizenship are not the same thing, but the rights of being a citizen should entail, he argued, the right of free religious conscience, and the law should not discriminate against religious minorities. I have to add in fairness that it was enough of a man of his time to say that he wasn't talking about atheists. <laughs> he says that Jews, Muslims, and Christians ought to be perfectly free to exercise their religious liberty together, but nobody in their right mind would want an unbeliever to be voted for government. As I say, he is around this time. But for that time, this passionate and generous vision of religious liberty was a very distinctive thing indeed. And it's perhaps not entirely surprising that Eckhart, although well connected and much published, 
never became official. I suspect that in the 1790s, when he was finally given the deanery of Peterborough, people in government were saying something like, we've probably got to do something for this man, but it mustn't be anything too important. So, uh, a middle-sized cathedral in the middle of the English Thames is probably about the original. Eckhart stands almost alone in the period as a defender of religious liberty, a defender of the emancipation of slaves, as a man of exceptional, broad vision, who, when he became head of our college in Cambridge, was able to create an unusually and harmonious academic community. He came into a college which at that time was rather heavily dominated by evangelical members of the Church of England, probably the system Protestant. Eckhart was more of a liberal, and his appointment was originally greeted with some disdain by some of his future colleagues. He won them round in a very short time. He was able to draw the best out of his colleagues, to support the positive reforms that had already been instituted under his predecessor, to develop the security and financial stability, as well as the academic excellence of the college. And for that alone, I think he's worth remembering as perhaps our greatest master ever. But that public profile saw him ignite the fire which at last consumed slavery. That's something which, as I think you can understand, we are even more proud of. Why might he matter to us today? A few years ago, a couple of our old members of alumni from the college offered to fund annual Eckhart Prize. Mindful of Eckhart's own specifying the subject for a prize essay in 1781, the vision of this prize, the Peter Eckhart Prize in Morgan, was that it should be awarded for an essay on some form of modern slavery. It's easy for us to forget that slavery did not end in 1807. Various forms of slavery persist in our own world. In the forms of, for example, the kidnapping of children to be soldiers in some of the bloody civil wars in Africa. Slavery survives in the trafficking of women and children for sexual abuse. Forms of indentured labor Slavery is still expressed in the position of women in many societies, especially in developing economies. Slavery can be seen in the fate of the low-caste Dalit workers in India. Slavery in the sense of a social position where you have absolutely no control of how you are defined 
no initiative in shaping society to what you long for and what makes you flourish. That's why it seems to us that to ask our students and others to reflect on where slavery can be seen in our modern world was a worthwhile matter. That is certainly one reason for remembering Eckhart and studying what he had to say. The first Eckhart Prize was awarded to a very brilliant young woman from Cambridge who wrote a piece about the depiction of women, very ironically, the depiction of women in campaign posters against the exploitation. She pointed out that the way in which women were represented in some of these campaigns was itself degrading to women. It made the problem worse, not better. A very challenging, very well-researched piece. Since then, we've had other essays on the problems of indentured labor, not least um, Korea, North Korea. We had other studies, some of the related topics I've mentioned. But in addition to this passion around slavery, as I've said, Eckhart was concerned about the kind of society he actually lived in, concerned about the rise of prejudice and irrationality. His pamphlets about civil liberty, his pamphlets about anti-Semitism are largely very impassioned pleas against the voice of the mob. If, he says, if you want to see change in your society, there are means by which you go about it. You argue, you persuade, you talk to your legislators, and at some point or other, you have to trust your legislators. You don't just assemble as large a crowd as you can to bully people into submission. Because large multitudes are very easily persuaded to irrational conclusions when they're addressed by charismatic, eloquent people. Well, the political climate of so much of the globe at the moment shows a fair amount of evidence, I think, that this is not a historical. Eckhart says, the voice of a seduced multitude is the voice of anarchy. And I find those words, seduced multitude, have been echoing in my mind ever since I first read them. Only yesterday, reading in the newspaper about the situation currently in Hungary, where an extremist government is increasingly shutting down the possibilities of religious toleration, reducing its welcome for migrants, and generally closing down its borders and its future. I thought there is a demagogue who represents the voice of a seduced multitude. And I might also, the phraseology which Eckhart uses in his 
pamphlet about the persecution of the Jews. He says that when some of the Christians put the lives and liberty of a religious minority at risk, they express a view at which every lover of his country and every lover of Christianity must tremble. In other words, the Christian attempting to impose an exclusivist, dominant Christian voice is betraying their Christianity. As I say, it's not too difficult to see why Becker never became Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> but I hope that what I've said so far will give you some sense of why we in our college look to this particular figure, because of this man especially, as representing a vision which we as a college and a university still want to own for ourselves and to develop. Our own efforts as a college to increase our outreach to the developing world, especially to Africa, to creators who are trying to do new scholarships for graduate students from Africa. All that is part of a legacy which looks back to Peter Packard. But I'll close with a near contemporary tribute to Packard. Not long after his death in 1799, the Gentleman's Magazine published an obituary tribute. For those of you for whom the Gentleman's Magazine isn't your weekly reading, uh, I should say that at the time this was one of the major organs of opinion for the educated upper and upper middle classes in Britain. Not an academic periodical and not a literary periodical, but a periodical in which ideas were discussed relevant to, broadly speaking, the governing classes of Britain. But in 1799, here is an essay towards the characteristic epitaph of the late Dean Peterborough. It's the first tribute to Peter Beckett. And just over a month ago, I was speaking in Peterborough Cathedral at Eckhart's tomb and read this very prevalent and significant verse. I won't read it all, it's quite a long one, but here are the bits that I found most If peace on earth, goodwill towards men may claim the blessed distinction of the Christian name, behold the Christian. Witness is zeal to stay the mad career of hard oppression and to drop in the tear of weeping slavery. And from rapine's hand devoted Africa, free thy groaning land. Should chance in the eventful round of time bring some poor wanderer from thy sultry clime, here shall he stop while grateful sorrows break from his full heart and wet his sable cheek. It's a powerful image. The writer imagines centuries from 1799, a visitor from Africa coming to Peterborough Cathedral 
shedding tears of gratitude at the grave of Peter Packard. You may say that it's a very sentimental, late 18th century conceit, and yet you might find it moving, sandy, at us too, to think that here was indeed one of those to whom an abused, vilified, exploited, enslaved population might well look as one who stood at the beginning of their emancipation. And, importantly, as I've underlined, he was a person who understood that emancipation, liberation, was always something indivisible. If you are arguing and campaigning freedom and dignity for human beings on the other side of the world, you had to argue and campaign for the freedom and dignity of people on your own doorstep. If you are arguing for freedom and dignity here in your own society, you are bound to be arguing for that freedom and dignity for those you might never meet, those who might perhaps in unimaginable future centuries come and shed a grateful tear at your time.